Well, good morning once again. It's good to see you folks. It's good to be back with you. If you have your Bibles, uh, our text this morning is, is going to be in the New Testament book of James. We're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, patience and suffering. <clears throat> James 5, verses 7 through 12. This is God's Word, so let's pay heed to it. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Please pray with me. Lord, we, uh, <clears throat> we ask that you would help us now to not only understand your word, but to believe your word, and then to do your word, being transformed by the Spirit that your law might be written on our hearts. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you probably are aware, I've, I've preached on this James text before, like I did, last week I'd preached on Mark 4 before, but again, I, wanna, I, wanted to, I wanna bring it to you again in light of these strange, discomforting, bizarre circumstances that we currently find ourselves in, what with all the stuff that's going on, COVID-19 and all that. Uh, God's Word is not only everlasting, it's also timely. It speaks to precise moments in the lives of His people. And I think this short text from James certainly does that. First, who is this James fellow? Uh, you know, there are a number of James that are mentioned in the New Testament church, but, but it's almost certain that this James is the Lord's brother. Now, we know that he was a leader in the Jerusalem church. He, he presided at that very important council of Jerusalem. It's a key historical event that's recorded by John in Acts 15. It's believed that James wrote this letter, this epistle, around A.D. 44. And if that's true, that would make it one of the earliest New Testament writings. So James... He has a lot going for him. Being the Lord's brother, he has a lot of street cred. Uh, he became one of the pillars of the early church, along with Peter and John. Listen to how J.I. Packer describes the book of James. Of the five wisdom books of the Old Testament, it has been classically said that the Psalms will teach you how to pray, Proverbs how to live, Job how to suffer, 
song, How to Love, Ecclesiastes, How to Enjoy. Packer goes on and says, that dictum seems to, uh, to me wonderfully insightful, and it's totally reinforced by James, the New Testament writer, who speaks to all these themes, most forcefully within his five brief chapters. In other words, I think it's, we can say that James is the New Testament's book of wisdom. You know, right at the beginning of the letter in verse 5, we read, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And it's important to note that this wisdom which James puts before us in these five chapters, it's not just some theoretical pie-in-the-sky wisdom. It's very, very practical wisdom. In these five short chapters, James is talking to Christians. He's talking to you and me. And he instructs us, I think, in the nuts and the bolts of a godly life and God-honoring behavior. And, you know, this is what serious Christians have loved about this book. Down through the ages, James is so practical. He's talking turkey to us where we live every day. He's saying what we all know we need to hear and hear again. Now, most of you are aware that I spent a large part of my adult life in the United States Army, uh, and a lot of that time was teaching in the Army school system. Taught at the War College, the Command and General Staff College, whatever. And maybe you're aware of the Army way of teaching. If not, it's basically this. I know it's three steps. You've heard it before. You tell them what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. Then you tell them what you just told them. (laughs) You know, and James pretty much does the same thing here in this text. Look there. He, He commands, be patient. Then he gives us this illustration of the patient farmer. Then he repeats the command, be patient. Then he goes on and gives us two more examples or illustrations of patient uh, endurance and steadfastness. He talks about the prophets. He talks about Job. That's a good way to teach, actually. It's straightforward. Gets through to people, at least army folks. I don't know about you Presbyterians, though. We'll (laughs) we'll We'll just have to see, all right? Now, the key terminology of the passage are are forms of two different word groups, meaning first, patience. Patience is mentioned three times here. In verses 7 and 8, it's mentioned once in verse 10. And then there's the word steadfastness. It's mentioned twice in verse 11. Now, in in these verses, let me just give you a quick thumbnail uh, definition of this. Patience is the self-restraint that does not hastily retaliate against a wrong. It's the self-restraint that doesn't retaliate against a wrong. And then steadfastness. It, it's, an emotion, it's a temperament, actually, an attitude that does not easily succumb under suffering. Someone who's steadfast just keeps on keeping on, regardless of the circumstances. And here's the key point of what I'm going to say this morning. James tells us here that the motivation, the driving force for that kind of patience and steadfastness is the next and the last great event in redemptive history, the second coming 
of the Lord. When Jesus comes to save and to judge. You see what James is is saying here? He says, focus on that. Keep your eye on that ball. Keep the Lord's return in glory in the forefront of your thinking. Every hour of every day. That's the key here, he says. Now, you've probably noticed in these verses how many times James says brothers. If my count is right, I think he says it four times. So he's talking to Christians. He's talking to us who are going through some hard times. And he's concerned to set before us, I think, the proper attitude, the frame of mind that we must have if we're going to make it through to the end. You know, if we're going to persevere until Christ comes back again. And so his advice to us in these verses is simple. It's straightforward. First, be patient when you suffer. And second, remain steadfast when you suffer. Now, I didn't read them, but in the first six verses of chapter 5, James talks about rich people who oppress the poor. And he basically gives them a strong warning not to do that. He says, don't do that because God sees and he hears all that. And having said that to these rich folks, he then turns his attention in our text, in verse 7, to those folks the rich were taking advantage of. He told the rich not to oppress the poor. But since he assumes that in most cases they're not going to stop doing that, then what are the poor to do? How are they to act in face of that? So James tells them here in the first place to be patient. Now, I want you to notice something here. He's not telling them to be patient because there's nothing else they can do. He's not telling them to be patient because, well, maybe the rich will then treat them a little better if they're patient. He's not saying that at all. That's not what he says here. He says, brothers and sisters, be patient, remembering the kind of Lord you serve. Remember that he's a just God, that the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, is coming again in judgment. And when he does, when he comes again, all the injustices that are now being inflicted on you, he's going to make right. You know, Psalm 37, it's a marvelous song of encouragement to Christians. Go home and read it this afternoon. And in that psalm, God's saints are described there as poor and needy. They're described as suffering persecution at the hands of wicked people. And when that happens, the psalmist says, they're tempted to be envious sometimes of the prosperity, the well-being of the wicked, and even paradoxically, to be impatient for the wicked to receive judgment. That's me. That's us. But in that situation, and we've all been there one time or another, the psalmist encourages us to, here's what he says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Not to get angry, because God will certainly vindicate the righteous and destroy the wicked. You know, there's a beautiful proverb, Proverbs 20, 22, repeats that. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. 
Well, I say all that because James pretty much says the same thing here, doesn't he? He's writing to believers who are suffering. People who believe in a future world beyond this one. They believe in a sovereign God. They believe in justice because God is a just God. And James says to them, if you're oppressed, then be patient because when Jesus comes back, justice will be done. He's going to make it right. So he wants them and and he wants us to focus in on that day when Jesus comes back. Keep that day before us. Live our lives in light of that focal point. It's the coming of Christ for which we're all waiting. All of life is to be lived in light of that last event in redemptive history. And in that sense, it's coming soon, James says. I think James is saying here very clearly that the Christian life is not a sprint, not a hundred-yard dash. It's a marathon. And the finish line is the second coming and not anything else less. And James here uses as an example, as an illustration, that of a farmer who has to patiently wait for the earth to produce his crops. I'm not a farmer. I have a good farmer, Ted Haas, who lives in, uh, in, down at Wilcox. But uh, the farmer plants the seed at the time of the early autumn October rains. And Ted assures me he has to wait for the necessary late spring rains, which cause the grain to mature for harvest. I think I've told you this story before, but it's, I think it's appropriate to this context. There's a story told about an ungodly farmer who lived in a, he lived in a predominantly Christian community. All the other farmers uh, observed the Lord's Day. They went to church and Sunday school on Sunday. This man's farm was, uh, was right across the road from the church. And so to demonstrate his independence from God, he made it a point to plow his fields on Sunday mornings. Every Sunday he was out there plowing his fields. The summer went by, harvest came, and after the harvest, this man wrote a letter to the local newspaper explaining his position, put it on the, on the editorial page. And this is what he said. All summer long when others were in church, I've been working my fields. God hasn't punished me for my action. In fact, not only have my crops succeeded, but I've even been able to raise more crops than those who rested one day of the week. What do you think of that? Well, the editor of the paper, he was a Christian. He printed the letter in full, but down at the bottom under this man's article, this is what he added. He said, God doesn't settle his accounts in October. It's a good quote. You know, we may undergo persecution now in this life. We may endure trouble. We may become infected by a virus for which there is yet no vaccine. We may see the wicked prospering while we're suffering. But And that's kind of the way things are. It happens. In verse 9, John goes on, or James goes on, and he warns us not to be grumblers. I need to go back. I want to say another thing here. 
we could undergo persecution. But that's not the end of the matter. God is going to eventually come. Maybe tomorrow, I don't know. Maybe next week. But eventually, he's going to come to settle his accounts. And here's the point. Dear ones, it's only the October of our lives. In the meantime, I think James is encouraging us here to, we have to wait patiently for the spring rains. Wait patiently for Christ to come back. Then he's going to set things right. Okay, let me now go on to verse 9. James goes on here and uh, he warns us, he says, don't be grumblers. We need to not to be grumblers while we patiently wait. And I think we can understand why James puts this in here, don't we? You know, you think about it, isn't this grumbling one of the temptations that almost always accompanies the presence of difficult circumstances like those that James is describing here? I think it is. You know, blaming others, I think that's a form of impatience. You know, many of our hard words, whether or not we admit it, they're an expression of our own impatience. You know, our sense of having been wronged and the Lord's not doing anything about it. Why aren't you doing something, Lord? So what do we do? We take matters into our own hands. And I think we know from experience that almost never turns out good. So I think we need to watch our words and actions during this pandemic or any other problems that are going on. Because the coming of the Lord is at hand, verse 8. The judge is standing at the door. You know, one of my favorite hymns is for all the saints, and we're going to sing that this morning. That's our closing hymn. Uh, it, it was written in 1864, and I think the Trinity Hymnal says it was concluded in 1875 by this man, William Walsham Howe, H-O-W. So we're going to close the service this morning with him. I'll, let me just give you a quick preview of this wonderful hymn. Amy, can we put that on the screen? Is it on the screen? Okay, is that the first? Is that a stanza or a verse, Annie? Verse. It's a verse. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to look at the verses here. Let me just uh, comment on this hymn. You know, what you may not know is that we have six verses of this hymn in the Trinity Hymnal. We're going to see those on the screen. But Hal actually wrote 12 stanzas. The six stanzas, you know, we have, I don't know why the other six are not in there. I guess it, it just probably doesn't fit. But uh, let me tell you a little bit about this hymn because I think it's appropriate to what James is talking about here. For all the saints, is basically, it's a prayer of thanksgiving to God for the way that he caused people to persevere in suffering to the very end. That speaks directly to us today. Now, he praises God here in verse 1. I think that's what's up there. For all the saints who have found their labors rest. You know, those saints who are in heaven, enjoying the presence of God right now. And God was the one who caused them to persevere. He was the one that brought them to heaven. Let's look at verse 2. I got stanza in my notes, Annie. I'm sorry. <laughs> Look what he says about the saints here in verse 2. Thou wast their rock. Is that what's up there? Yeah. Their fortress and their might. 
Thou, Lord, their captain in the well-fought fight. Thou, in the darkness drear, their one true light. And so he sings of this glorious reality that God was their hope during some of their dark days. Then he turns the focus of prayer upon us, you and me, in verse 3. He begins to pray that God would make us to be faithful in the fight that you and I are fighting here on earth. Look what he says there. O may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old and win with them the victor's crown of gold. And so what's he doing? He's praying that God would enable us to fight as the saints who have gone before us. Now, listen to what Hal says in one of the stanzas that's not in the Trinity hymnal. I should say, I don't know why it wasn't included. It's really, really good. It really fits in here. And he says this, And when the strife is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song, and hearts are brave again, and arms are strong. When the strife is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song, hearts are brave again. Arms are strong. See what he's saying? He's saying there that when things go south and you're beginning to fail, you hear in the distant future this triumph song because the victory is already won by Christ. And, And we need to get a glimpse of that victory. It's already won. It's certain. It's more certain than the air we're breathing. And Hal says we need to get a sight of it a sound of it, a smell of it. And when we do, we can go on. We can survive the trials that we're going through right now. That's what James is talking about here. So Hal is still not done. He goes on now in verse 4. The golden evening, is that up there? The golden evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors comes their rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise the blessed. You know, this is one reason we sing this glorious hymn at funerals. He's talking about a day when the sunset of God sets upon a believer. And that believer's body is laid in the grave and his soul goes immediately to be in paradise with God. Then there are two more stanzas in the Trinity hymnal, verses 5 and two more verses in the Trinity hymnal, verses 5 and 6. So it's not just a faithful death that the believer is aiming for. There's something more. Look at what he says there in those two verses. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The king of glory passes on his way. Alleluia, alleluia. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, Through gates of pearl streams in the countless host, saying to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. That that turns me on. That's the point, isn't it? That's what we're working for, isn't it? Isn't that our hope? You know, i got to tell you, there are points in my life, I know there are in yours. I get discouraged. I get discouraged in ministry. I get discouraged by my own besetting sin. I do the same things over and over. I cave in repeatedly to what someone told me once was my disordered desires. 
I wonder why I'm doing this. You, you know all this too. Then I remind myself that there will be a day. A day is coming when I'm going to stand with all of you. And dear ones, we're going to see the King of glory passing on his way. And we're going to turn to each other, one another, and we'll say, we're going to say, this is why we did it. This is, the, this is why I preached. This is why we prayed. This is why we worked. This is why we endured suffering patiently. This is what we're hoping for. We were hoping for the day when we would see the coming King of glory passing on his way. And let me tell you this, dear ones, let me just tell you, if that is our hope, then we can endure patiently anything. Anything. COVID-19 be damned. And what a great hymn this is to, be, to remind us of that. Well, James goes on. He tells us that we're not only to be patient, but we're also to remain steadfast. Not to succumb to things like anger and bitterness when we're tempted or when we're suffering. You know, I think sometimes we do get this false idea that uh, patience is somehow to be passive. Yeah, that we're just to sit quietly, let go, and let God hold our tongue, wait and trust that someday God's going to sort it all out for us. I don't think that's what James is getting at here. What James is getting at here when he says that we're to be not only patient but to remain steadfast, I think he's saying that we're to be patient in an active way. Remaining steadfast, standing firm, enduring. I think it suggests that we're to hold tightly to what we have. We're to bear up under opposition, praise God, but we're also to lay hold of all the ammunition God gives us. And then shoot it in the right direction. I think it means giving testimony to the gospel whenever that situation presents itself. Never retreating from what we know. It means that we're to endure as ambassadors of Christ who have a mission assigned to us. We're to make sure that we really live for Christ. And we should always be about the Lord's business. You know, God has given us many means of his grace. He expects us to use them. You know, and to help us in all this, James goes on now, and he gives us two examples, two illustrations of the suffering of godly men in history. He reminds us that they went through only what other Christians have experienced. First, in verses 10 and 11, he directs our attentions to the prophets. Now, it's interesting, he doesn't name the prophets. He doesn't name which prophets he has in mind here. But we know that all the prophets endured some sort of rejection, some sort of abuse. You know, Moses, take Moses. He had to put up with all those stiff-necked, rebellious, grumbling Israelites. You know, those people were always griping about something. They almost always blamed him for what they were going through. It was a tough gig for Moses. David, relentlessly pursued by Saul. Jeremiah, he endured opposition throughout his ministry. 
bringing him so much sorrow. You remember what, what he became known as? He was the weeping prophet. Ezekiel. He endured the death of his wife during the course of his ministry. You remember Daniel. You know, he was ripped from his homeland as a teen, teenager. I think he was 16 years old. Thrown into a den of lions because of his faithfulness to God. Hosea went through a heartbreaking marriage. Amos faced lies. The New Testament, John the Baptist, he was in prison, later beheaded for his testimony to God's truth. Hebrews 11 lists a whole host of lesser-known prophets. You go there and you read, they were jeered, they were flogged, they were chained, they were imprisoned, they were stoned, they were sawed in two, put to death by the sword. They went around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. Think of Stephen. And Stephen was being stoned. He reminded his executioners that there was not a messenger that God had sent who had not been rejected in his time. Acts 7, was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And of course, there was the righteous one. The culmination of God's revelation. The messenger who was above all the other messengers, the coming king. He was also killed. Now, understand, you know, James is not encouraging us to go out and seek persecution, <laughs> to, to, to seek suffering. That's not what he, but he is saying this. I think he is saying this, that if you endure suffering for the sake of righteousness, you need to also remember that it's not uncommon for that to happen to God's people. It happens, and we should expect it. All the prophets suffered for their testimony, and so will we. But James' point is what we go through now is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us when Christ comes back and meets us in the air, takes us to heaven. So he says, remember the prophets. Be encouraged to run your Christian race with diligence and faithfulness as they did. It is worth it. So James doesn't mention prophets here, any specific prophets, but he does mention one individual. Not a prophet as far as we know, but nevertheless one whose name is nearly synonymous with patient suffering, and that's Job. You know the story of Job. Job was a righteous man. He certainly he wasn't sinless, but he did live an upright life before God. And we know that he endured unimaginable, in some cases, unexplained suffering. The fierce attacks of Satan, which re resulted in the loss of all of his children, his wealth, his health, his reputation. And I think, worst of all, Job lost his sense of God's presence in his life. Yet through all this, even though he didn't understand sometimes why it was happening to him. Job knelt down and he worshiped God. And this is what he said. You know what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall depart. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
And the text says, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And later, after all this terrible stuff had happened to him, we find Job saying triumphantly, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. What a great story. Great story of patience, steadfastness. What an example. You know, to encourage us when we suffer trials, to patiently endure, to stand firm. And I think realize that through these trials, God is strengthening us. He, he is perfecting us. And in the end, he's going to richly bless us. He's not going to necessarily bless us with physical blessings like he did Job, but assuredly with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. And so our passage ends in verse 12 with this, I think, somewhat puzzling saying about oaths. It's almost a direct quote, by the way, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew 5. So, I don't know. What do oaths have to do with trials and patience and endurance and suffering? Why in the world would James suddenly say, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven and earth. What does that have to do with anything? My first inclination is to say, I'm not sure. But I think there are a couple of things going on here. First of all, the, that little phrase, but above all, I think it suggests that when we're tempted to lose heart, when we're tempted to grumble, I think James is warning us that one thing we must never do is to begin using the Lord's name in vain to express our unhappiness about the state of our affairs by some irrelevant, irreverent oath. There may be something else, I'm not sure, but he may also, this may also be a warning against against some knee-jerk reaction to the oppression of the rich that was described back in the first six uh, verses of chapter 5. I think it's true, from, for, at least from my experience, that people do tend, at times, uh, when there's trouble coming, they, they tend to make these unrealistic pledges to God. I think I've mentioned to you, I was in the Army, some, it's kind of like foxhole conversions. You know, a soldier pledges himself to a lifetime commitment to God. If you get me out of here, I'll serve you forever. But when God gets them out of it, they immediately forget about it. And I think uh, James may be saying here something like that, that it's better just to be genuine. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. It's better to mean what you say than to have these unfulfilled, unrealistic vows hanging over you. You God says we are obliged to keep vows. So the warning against vows may be part of James' call to patience and restraint in speech as in other daily behavior, such as maybe watching your tongue. Read it yourself and come to, if you want to come to a different conclusion. It's the best I can do. Okay, I want to conclude with this by telling you a story. It's a story of how living in light of the second coming of Christ had an impact not only on one man, but on a whole nation. It's a story of a man by the name of Anthony Ashley Cooper. Have you ever heard of Anthony Ashley Cooper? 
Well, he became, he was the famous Lord Shaftesbury. You probably never heard of him either. Uh, but uh, of 19th century England. It's a story that I ran into in uh, John Stott's book, uh, The Incomparable Christ. It's a wonderful story about the second coming. So I want to just read you a couple of pages from that book about Anthony Ashley Cooper. Born in 1801, Cooper had an unhappy childhood. Neglected and abused by his parents, his only solace was their housekeeper, Anna Maria Mills, who told him Bible stories, taught him to pray, seems to have led him to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the age of 16, while at Harrow School, he saw a group of drunken men drop a poor man's coffin in the street, cursing and laughing as they did so. He was sickened and disturbed by this incident, later calling it the origin of my public career. Career, For then and there he resolved to dedicate his life to the cause of the poor and the weak. He entered Parliament in 1826, aged only 25 and soon began his program of humanitarian reform, seeking to remedy some of the worst consequences of the Industrial Revolution. His unremitting labor continued for nearly 60 years, and the legislation for which he was largely responsible represents an astonishing achievement. Listen to this. In 1842, the Coal Mines Act prohibited underground work in mines by women and girls and reduced the hours worked by boys. In 1845, the Lunacy Act secured the humane treatment of the insane and appointed 15 commissioners in lunacy, of which he was one for 40 years. In 1847, 1850, and 1859, he piloted through Parliament the 10 Hours Factory Act, which regulated working hours for women and children. He was the acknowledged leader of all this factory reform. In 1851, the Common Lodging House Act sought to end the unsanitary and overcrowded conditions of lodging houses, laid down acceptable standards, and permitted local authorities to inspect them and to supervise them. Even this list is far from complete, Stott reminds us. Ashley Cooper also founded the Ragged, Ragged School Union, and busied himself on behalf of boy chimney sweeps, flower girls, orphans, prostitutes, prisoners, handicapped people, and crippled children. Although his parliamentary bills were several times defeated, he refused to give up. I must persevere, his journal records. What motivated him? To begin with, he believed and loved the gospel. I am essentially and from deep-rooted conviction, he wrote in his diary, an evangelical of the evangelicals. This means that in particular, he emphasized the divinity of Christ, his atoning sacrifice, and his coming kingdom, and his good works of love and justice were the natural outflow of his faith. During the 1830s, however, he became firmly and vitally convinced of the second coming of Christ. It entered into all his thoughts and feelings, wrote Edwin Hodder. It stimulated him in the midst of all his labors. It gave tone and color to all his hopes for the future. For there is no real remedy, he often said, 
for all this massive misery, but in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we not plead for it every time we hear the clock strike? I cannot tell you, Cooper once said to Hodder, his authorized biographer, how it was that this subject first took hold upon me. It has been, as far as I can remember, a subject to which I have always held tenaciously. Belief in it has been a moving principle in my life, for I see everything going on in the world subordinate to this one great event. It's not surprising, therefore, that Cooper's favorite text was the second from last verse, the last verse in the Bible. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Revelation 22.20. His lifelong diary, to which he committed his private thoughts, is sprinkled all through with the same expression of pent-up longing. It was a model he had inscribed in Greek on the flaps of the envelopes he used every day. A few years before he died, he left instructions that Revelation 22.20 should be one of three texts engraved on his tombstone. And on his deathbed, he kept murdering, muttering, Come, Lord Jesus. Anthony Ashley Cooper, 7th Earl of Shaftesbury, died in 1885. So richly had he deserved the epithet, the poor man's earl, Tens of thousands of people from all walks of life lined the route taken by the cortege carrying his body from his home in Grosvenor Square to Westminster Abbey. There was a great outpouring of public grief, love, and respect. Representatives of the homes, asylums, schools, and societies that he had founded carried carried banners on which were emblazoned sentences from Matthew 25. I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Even the pouring rain could not dampen their spirits. My lords, explain, exclaimed the Duke of Argyle in a political speech delivered soon afterward, the social reforms of the past century have not been due to a political party. They have been due to the influence, the character, and the perseverance of one man. I refer, of course, to Lord Shaftesbury. The Times newspaper also acknowledged him as a man who changed the whole social condition of England. And why? What had been his incentive? What had been his motivation? He tells us. Toward the end of his life, he said, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. That's quite a story. Here's my take on it for you to consider today. If the living, I think I put this in your handout. If the living prospect of the Lord's return can change an entire society for the better, how much will it change your life and mine to reckon with it every day, every hour of every day? You know what a what a huge difference in perspective it would make to consider our current circumstances in light of the second coming, when Christ will completely vindicate his people, when he'll make all things right, 
when he makes all crooked things straight. How differently we will view our problems, I think. This situation we're in right now. How much more carefully we will speak of others, speak to others. How much more patient and resolute we will be in enduring opposition and remaining steadfast in any trials and sufferings that we have. Dear ones, I think this is what it means to live by faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To behave as any Christian ought to behave. Who knows that the Lord is near. He's standing at the door. So, that's my prayer for us today. That we would always live each day in excited expectation that the coming of our Lord is near, perhaps even today. That perspective, that faith changes everything. That faith will allow us to endure anything, anything that comes our way. And Lord, I pray that you would make it so in our lives today. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless, bless these truths to us. You would bless them when we're in good health and all goes well. You know, sometimes these stories about this farmer and the prophets and Job, they sometimes they seem irrelevant to us today, to our situations. We can hardly identify with them. But when things go south, when sickness comes, when people in our family suffer affliction or when they die, when a strange virus intrudes, then these stories do have meaning. We pray, O oh Father, that you would so write them upon our minds and cause them to sink down deep into our understanding that when these troubles come to us, as they must most certainly do to all of us, that we might stand steadfastly before them with great patience, not in the wisdom of this world, but rather in that wisdom which is grounded in Scripture, consists in our sure knowledge that you're coming is near, that it is at hand, that you are in fact standing at the door. Grant that we might grow in that knowledge, live in the light of that truth, not for our sake, but for the sake of him who loved us and gave himself for us, even Jesus our Savior. Amen.